Hello, Shane Coleman here and welcome to the Top 5 Books podcast where we ask various well-known people for their top five books. We're joined by one of Ireland's best-known historians, Dermot Ferreter of UCD, author of many books, the latest being, of course, A Nation, Not a Rabble, The Irish Revolution, 1913 to 1923. Dermot, you're, um, you're very welcome to the programme. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Shane. Um, now, I suppose books are something that people would associate with Dermot Ferreter. I can't get away from them, can I? <laughs> no. <laughs> if I'm not uh, engaged in some book projects myself, I suppose I'm reviewing a lot of other history books. But it, it's largely history books. I don't get to read as much fiction as I'd like, partly because I don't associate reading with winding down at night. Yeah, So fair I wouldn't enough. take off to bed with a novel because I've invariably been reading various history books during the day and it's like an extension of work. Yeah. So I don't get to read as much fiction as I'd like, sometimes on holidays. Were books, I mean, you were obviously bookish, I think it's probably fair to say, I don't think you can be an historian if you're, if you're not bookish. Were books always part of, you know, your growing up, your childhood reading? Oh, very much so. And I think it's one of the reasons why I ended up with such an interest in history and ultimately became a historian. I think your formative years are vital in that respect. And if you're surrounded by books, if there are bookshelves and books in a prominent place, both my parents' teachers very interested in books themselves. So I certainly do remember very well-stocked bookshelves. And I think that's very common for people who get curious that they have been surrounded by books. I was very interested in encyclopedias from a very early age, for example. So that would suggest that there was, you know, a, a desire to find out more or a hunger there yeah. for information about various in things. In the days before uh, Google. Um, uh, well, that's actually I mean, it, The idea you know, of buying an yeah, encyclopedia, it's, it's a quite yeah. a quaint notion. I mean, I've said it to my students in recent years that I was asked at one stage, you know, what had I browsed the previous week? You know, and of course they meant what had you browsed on the internet? But I actually associate browsing with real books and bookshelves. And you can learn an awful lot that way because you're not looking for something very, very specific a lot of the time, you know, and you end up finding things and you end up being diverted and you end up going to books that perhaps you wouldn't have Mm. done otherwise. Whereas I think sometimes when you're browsing or you're searching with the internet, you tend to move on very quickly. Yeah, yeah. If you don't get the information immediately, you tend to move on to another site yeah. and you're not getting that kind of experience. And the browsing experience for me started at a very early stage at home. And there were a lot of history books there, but there were also a lot of novels. And my parents would have had their own favourites, you know. But I do remember even from that very early stage there being books about the Irish Revolutionary period in particular. There yeah. was a very controversial biography of Patrick Pierce published in 1977, for example, Ruth Dudley Edwards, The Triumph of Failure. And it was the first kind of warts and all treatment of Pierce. And I remember that book on the shelves at the end of the 1970s and I would have only been eight or nine. Mm. So those kind of books were there. They were in the ether. Just before we get to your your first choice, I mean, you mentioned reviewing books. You review history books a lot. I mean, I've read some of your reviews. You don't pull your punches, I think it's fair to say. I mean, most recently, obviously, with the Tim Pat Coogan uh, review. And uh, Why are you, you smiling like that? Because <laughs> it caused quite a bit of controversy, <laughs> as I'm sure you're aware. You did one of um, Des O'Malley's autobiography as well. I mean, is that a... Do you feel so passionate about books that they should be, in your view, that they should be well done, well researched, comprehensive? Or is I it do, just... Yeah. I do feel passionate about that and I wouldn't pretend for a moment that I am particularly exemplary in mm. relation to you know producing books or the content of those books. I would never set myself up on that pedestal. Mm. But what you have to do if you're a historian and you're reviewing a book that's either a history book or has a strong historical context, you've got to look for evidence, you've got to look for sources, you've got to look at methodology, how do they go about their project, what's involved in it. 
And you've got to be rigorous about that kind of scrutiny. If you're dealing with the history book that is making all sorts of claims that are not backed up by research or are not verified or are not footnoted, you've got to, as a historian, start asking questions. How do we know what we know? And I'm very interested in that aspect of things. So sometimes you do have to bring a particular critical overview Mm. to those kind of questions. Now, the difficulty, of course, as with all book reviewing, is that sometimes you can be accused of being personalised in your book reviews or that you're going too hard on somebody. And it can be awkward, of course, because you're going to meet these people, inevitably, in a country of this size. But my own books would have been subjected to the same kind of scrutiny and the same kind of reviewing uh, process. So, you know, all of this evens out. Yeah. Uh, it's not that there are any particular personal agendas at work. Of course there are feuds, and, you know, we associate particular writers with literary feuds over the years, and of course there are people who, if they're writing on a particular area of history, a contested area of history, that they will be accused of being overly critical of people who yeah. don't share their perspective. But I think that can be exaggerated too. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we're not affected by the environment in, in which we research and write yeah. and review. I mean, there are particular controversies that are of their time or a particular individual might come sharply into focus, Devon okay. being an obvious example of that. So I'm not suggesting that we can completely exist outside of the society in which we are writing and others are, you know, others are producing books. But at the same time, I'd like to think that the focus is on evidence all right, let's get to your choices. Um, I mean, there are some maybe less unexpected choices further into your list, but l- let's start with uh, one which I'm guessing has a particular kind of relationship to your children. That's uh, Click Clack Moo, Cows That Type by Doreen Cronin. This is a lovely subversive book. Again, the context for that, I have three young daughters, 11, 9 and 7 now, and obviously over the last 10 years I have read countless children's books to them. And it's again, it, it's a very <laughs> important part that is for so many people, of the nightly routine. But there are so many awful books for girls in particular. You know, these princess books and these messages that they are promoting about what a girl wants to grow up to be and to be the princess and marry the dashing prince. And they're horrifying. Uh, It worked for Kate Middleton, though, didn't it? They do. They work for some (laughs) people, yeah, who perhaps have um, uh, a very limited worldview. But, (laughs) of course, invariably, I'm not being politically correct about this because, you know, these are my views. It wasn't necessarily um, that I I was getting this message from my children. Why would would a five-year-old not want to hear a nice princess story? But the great thing about children's books is that you can occasionally find a subversive one that completely rewrites the script and has a message within it that is very amusing and very informative for an adult, Mm. but also can be very entertaining for kids. And this is one, this is essentially about Father Brown, who discovers that the cows in his barn have access to a typewriter, hence the click, clack, click, clack, moo, and they begin to make demands about their working conditions, about their living conditions, about the need for blankets, and they refuse to give him any milk until he addresses their demands. Is, is it a children's version of Animal Farm? Or That's what? what it is, essentially, yeah. yeah. It's also a version of labour history. Uh, in a very ex- I can see how that would appeal to you. <laughs> in, a very accessible, uh, in a very accessible way. But the great thing about the story is it's very, very funny, obviously, because that image, and it, it works very well for children, that image of the cows on their typewriter. But it's also about extending. It's about the sympathetic strike, because it's not just the cows, but then the chickens cotton onto this, and they realise that they have a particular power, which is the power to withhold their eggs. Mm. So suddenly a farmer who is not sympathetic is looking at revolting cows, revolting chickens, and the ducks have plans too. 
So um, there's, there's an awful lot in that. And yeah. It's very, very funny. It's very Fantastic. well done. Okay. Your other choice is um, something that I, I, I mean, I, I read you writing about this before, um, your, your passion for running. Yeah, it's not good for me. No, it probably wasn't good. It wasn't good for Jim Fix, it maybe. Good for, uh, it fixed Jim for a while, but not for long enough. No, the reason I chose this book, this is the complete book of running, which was published by James Fix or Jim Fix in 1977. Now, again, this is a book from my parents' bookshelves because my parents were part of that first big craze in the, Ireland, the marathon craze yeah. in the late 1970s, the first Dublin marathon uh, around that period. They ran the marathon in 1981. And this is one of the books that they had. Now, the reason I use it is because I keep going back to it because I got seriously into running about uh, 10, 12 years ago. And it's the kind of book that has aged very well because there are so many books now on running and there are so many people running and there's fad approaches to running and fad approaches to exercise generally and to injuries and recovering from them. What I liked about this book is that it was full of, of sound sense. He emphasised the psychological benefits of running as well as the physical benefits. And he gave the example at the outset of the book of somebody who went to a doctor who was a keen runner, the patient, and he was told to stop running because there was an nagging injury that just he couldn't shake off. And he turned around to the doctor and said, you don't understand, if I can't run, I'm not well. And then the doctor said, well, that makes me think about it very differently. And he mm. found a solution to him uh, eventually. And it's full of those kind of anecdotes, but it's also full of factual information about what the actual process of running involves. And I think it's, it's aged very well. Unfortunately, Jim Fix dropped out of a heart attack at the age of 52. While running, I think I'm right. He just came back from yeah. his daily run. Yeah. So that could be obviously held up as a reason not to take uh, his, his book on running well, too seriously. Well, perhaps he might have died a number of years earlier if he had No, there, there were underlying yeah. reasons. There was yeah. genetics. You know, his father had, had died at 43 from a heart attack and had his first heart attack at 35. He was a very uh, heavy smoker, very overweight before he began running. So he didn't do his body any favours in the run-up to that. But running for me is something that's hugely important for mental health. And I just liked his approach. It's a very rounded approach. It's a very common sense approach. And some of the more recent running books have been trying too hard. And what appeals to you about running? Is it like, there's almost an austerity about running, isn't there? If I can use that term. Oh, there is. Yeah, I was sneering at all these post-Celtic Tiger runners who suddenly started appearing in 2009 or 2010. You know, where were you back in the glorious days of the Celtic Tiger? Yeah. But again, that's... Easy to run in a recession. Not that's, so hard. Yeah. Not so, not so, uh, not no, so easy I mean, in boom it, time. It is. It, but it, there's also a practical side to it. And you'd be familiar with this when you're at a particular stage in life and it's difficult to balance everything. The great advantage of running is that you can do it anywhere once you have your runners, and you can do it first thing in the morning, you run out your front door. And, you know, that doesn't apply to a lot of other exercise. So that's when I tend to do it. This time of year, very dark, but very early. I love watching the place wake up. I love watching the lights come on. I love that sense that you can plan your day, that you can make decisions that you have to make because you're clear-headed, because there's a bit of adrenaline there, and obviously you're keeping yourself fit as well. Um, there's an advantage in, you know, then not having perhaps to worry okay. about indulgence to the same extent. Okay, interesting, very interesting choice. Let's move on to your your next choice, and um, this would be one I might have get, you know, I might have guessed you might have picked, Post War by Tony Judd. I mean, it's a magnificent book and a hugely comprehensive book by. I suppose one of the world's best-known historians, or certainly yeah, was. Tony yeah, Tony George achieved an extraordinary profile, particularly towards the end of his life. He died prematurely in 2010. But he was a self-made historian. You know, he was the first from his family to go to university. He had an interesting background. His father actually spent some time in Ireland uh, as an immigrant. In his younger days, he was a radical Zionist. He was a Marxist Zionist. 
And, you know, he kind of dispensed with that as he got older. And he went on to look at specific aspects of European history. But what he did in 2005 with post-war, he did this sweeping panoramic look at post-war Europe, which is an enormous challenge in terms of methodology and yeah. scope and, Where do you start and, and almost, sources yeah. and everything else. And you have to have a kind of a spine to a book like that. It helps perhaps to be quite opinionated. But he's also funny and writes very, very well and sustains all of those qualities over 900 pages. And it's a book I went back to for a variety of different themes, including most recently, for example. There's been an awful lot of focus on Angela Merkel and the whole question of the refugee crisis. And, you know, through his own history, Jut was a product of that at an earlier stage. Yeah, I think didn't his own father end up in Ireland for yeah, a while, I think. Yeah. yeah, and then went off to England. And he was very strong, Judge, on the whole theme of European integration, but also the role of the state and the importance of state intervention. Yeah. And he became a very interesting critic of what had happened to Europe in relation to the crash of more recent times, shortly before he died. And he suggested that public service had been replaced with endless commerce. And it's a lovely summation of what went wrong. And would be a view, I know from reading your writings, that you'd be sympathetic to, I think. It's yeah, and I suppose that's one of the reasons why I, I found his his approach to this particularly interesting because a lot of it resonated and res- resonated in relation to Ireland. And Ireland doesn't feature hardly at all in post-war. It's interesting. Yeah, we feature in the context of the Troubles. Right. But what he does, he, he manages to go through the various different countries and the legacy of the Second World War period and what it meant for individual countries like Germany and France and Italy and Spain. And it's a terrific approach to history. It's very accessible. He's a writer who's not afraid to air opinions. I mean, most he's probably best known in America for his views on, on Israel and his, right, his argument yeah, for a, yeah. a single-state approach to yeah. uh, Israel and, and Palestine and so on. But in this book, does he, to a degree, does he park that? Is this he more, does, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, he became quite a well-known intellectual voice in yeah. America in relation to that question. Though I think his views were a bit more nuanced than sometimes he's given credit for. He did change his mind at various stages, which is a very good sign of a mind that is open, that is developing. But he wrote, there was a lovely book called The Memory Chalet, which was a collection of his essays. And again, he was looking at that theme in the post-Second World War period in Britain of austerity. You know, we associate austerity with very negative things for obvious reasons. But he was making the point, and David Caniston and other historians of, of Britain have made this point, that austerity can actually be looked on in positive ways in the sense that it provides an opportunity to think about doing things fundamentally mm. differently. I, like, I would argue we failed to take that opportunity. Well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I have no doubt about that either when you consider all of the, the hope that was there maybe five or six years ago that such was the scale of the crisis that it might force a complete rethink. reconsideration yeah. and rethink. So he was interesting in, in writing about that in, in an international context. Okay. You're listening to The Sunday Show. My guest is Diarmuid Ferter. We're going through his top five books. We're at number three. And at the start of the interview, I described you, in a, and I meant it in a complimentary sense, as, as somebody who would be kind of bookish. And uh, you've picked probably the ultimate sort of bookish book as uh, number three, The Dictionary of Irish Biography. This is an extraordinary project. Of course, I'm completely biased. It's the <laughs> ultimate reference work for anyone who's yeah. working in Irish history in relation to individuals. The contribution they make they made establishing the parameters of their life, of their career, and the specific details, including birth, death, all of that kind of stuff, family. Now, I was involved in this project. The Dictionary of Irish Biography, which was published by Cambridge in 2008, 
is an extraordinary achievement. It's nine volumes. You're talking about eight million words, nearly 10,000 entries and about 700 different contributors. There were a number of younger historians like myself who were employed in the 1990s for a year with the Dictionary of Irish Biography. Uh, and we were charged with the task of doing X amount of entries uh, every week. Uh, really, really interesting material. And one of the interesting issues around this was what kind of scope would there be for the inclusion of people who hadn't normally been a part of, of national biography? In other words, moving away from strictly a political focus. This wasn't all about male politicians. We're looking at artists, we're looking at sports people, we're looking at people who are involved in cultural life, in the theatre, writers, all of that, as mm. well as, of course, all the politicians, north and south. Uh, the only criteria was that you had to be dead. Um, at the time when the entry was being written and it's constantly updated. Now, why it's so fascinating also is because there have been many projects, national biography projects, that have either been aborted or have never seen the light of day, were just never finished. Right. What was extraordinary about the Irish project was that it was finished and it was finished on time. And it's a monumental work of scholarship. Is it, for those of us who haven't seen it, I mean, is there a paragraph in each book? How does it work? It, it obviously, it lists the book, but does, uh, how much detail does it go into? It depends on the individual. So you have entries ranging from a couple of hundred words up to 15,000 for people who are considered to have made a, a particularly significant contribution. Okay. So the big heavyweights would be there. So Noel Brown's autobiography, for example, would have a, a big section on that. Well, you'd have a big section on Brown himself and his life. And if you take politicians who made a big impact they'd obviously have, uh, have serious essays attached to them. But if you're working as a historian, I use it nearly every day because if you are writing anything, be it a book review or if you're writing a newspaper column or, or if you're writing a book and you need to check where was X individual in 1915, if you're supposing you're looking at the 1916 rising, giving yeah. all the preoccupation with that next year, was that individual attached to Boland's Mill or Jacob's Factory? or Just checking basic factual information so that you're getting your facts right. Okay. Your second choice, I have to say, is, is a book I have a huge amount of time for. You may disagree, but I suppose you could almost describe it as, a, as an Irish version of Tony Judd's book on Europe, although it, it came quite a bit earlier. Uh, Jolie, uh, The Politics and Society of Ireland, 1912 to 1985. Again, a big, sweeping kind of tone, but yeah. incredibly comprehensive. It was the first of its kind. You know, nobody had attempted that kind of analysis of the bulk of the 20th century, North and South. And he put it into a comparative context. Lee was very interested in comparing Ireland's experiences to other small states that emerged after the great upheavals and wars of that period of history uh, up to the early 1920s. And it's a very provocative book. It's a very polemical book. He has a section at the end called Perspectives, uh, which is essentially about trying to psychoanalyse the Irish experience uh, over the 20th century. The reason I picked this is because the time it was published in 1989, I came into UCD as a first-year history student in 1989. This book was an enormous stimulus. It didn't mean that you agreed with everything in it, but it provided a great stimulus to historians of my generation because it identified all sorts of gaps. It identified all sorts of uh, arguments that could be either endorsed or refuted. It was a great stimulus to further research. It was criticised at the time for neglecting social history, for neglecting women in particular. Um, so it's not that the book wasn't subjected to criticism. Mm. But I do remember watching The Late Late Show when the book was published. It was very unusual for a history book of that depth and scope to be discussed on The Late Late Show. And it was an indication, I suppose, of the impact that Joe Lee had made. And it's very much the book of his career. I mean, he's still active as a historian. He yeah. was in Cork. He's now in uh, NYU, New York University. But he has a great flair too. It's very, very well written. It's not necessarily... Well, very well written. I it's not necessarily the best book 
to use as an introduction to the Irish experience of the 20th century. It does assume... A certain amount of knowledge. Quite a level yeah. of knowledge, you know. But, yeah. I mean, that's a compliment to it, I think. It's, yeah. it's not setting itself out as a, a paint-by-numbers book. It w- it's always strikes me as a book I'd love to see a new version of it out, um, a new edition that would yeah. bring it up to the present day because I'd be fascinated to hear his perspective. Yeah. He's it. also of a generation of historians who were working without the kind of access to archival material that my generation has had because yeah. the state papers hadn't been released. Right. You know? So, you know, they, they were extraordinarily resourceful. But what he brings to his analysis of politics in particular is an ability to be able to delineate the various forces that were at work within Irish political culture and he's very strong on some of the leading politicians of the era but he's also focused on the permanent government, the civil servants. Mm. How is policy formulated? What's going on in the background? To what extent are that generation of of civil servants who who were associated with the foundation of the state, to what extent are they influenced by their own environment, by their own prejudices and by their own abilities? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Now you've picked. You said at the start that you know you generally don't have a lot of time to read fiction because, you know, you don't always associate reading with with winding down because of your work. Yet you have picked a work of fiction. Some people would say maybe the definitive work of fiction in Ireland in the last fifty or sixty years. Tell us your choice. It'll be interesting to see how the legacy of John McGarden is reflected on, and the book we're referring to is Amongst Women which was published in 1990, considered by many to be his masterpiece. It's an extraordinary novel. The reason I'm so drawn towards it is partly because I'm a historian and I regard it as a very valuable book in relation to the Irish experience of the 20th century. Mm. What John McGarhan did was mesmerising work on such a small canvas. This was a book that wasn't just written, it was crafted, painstakingly crafted over a decade. John McGarhan was very, very slow in how he approached his writing. And I mean that in a positive way. He was so careful about his craft. And the result is a masterpiece. And, you know, the patriarch Michael Moran is not a particularly attractive character. But he's but not he, pleasant at all, is he? Not at all. He represents so much of the Irish experience in relation to the patriarchy, in relation to the hypocrisies, the resentments, the frustrations that were experienced in Ireland. He's a tyrannical bully uh, in many ways. He has an extraordinary sense of self-pity. And his family have to deal with the fallout. Uh, you know, and amongst women is obviously referring to his own individual circumstances and the family, but also, of course, uh, the role of religion, blessed art thou amongst women. So there's a lot of different themes going on. Obviously, when John McGarten went on to publish his own memoir towards the end of his life, you can see the extent to which he was drawing very directly on his own personal experiences. Mm. But I've also gone back to amongst women recently because Michael Moran was one of those embittered veterans of the War of Independence yeah. who refused to apply for a military service pension on the grounds that there were people applying for it who didn't deserve it, and on the grounds that he had not done this for monetary reward, and on the grounds that those who were now presiding over the state had made a complete hames of it. And he speaks very strongly about emigration. So all of these themes are going on, but then you have the dark forces of the Irish family and what is going on behind the scenes. And these are the kind of themes that John McGarden had been writing about since the 1960s, and they're difficult subjects. He was writing about an awful lot of themes around which a very significant public discourse developed at a much later stage. But McGarren was very brave in tackling those subjects from the 1960s and he had to do that at considerable cost to yeah. himself. And he didn't really receive the kind of recognition that he deserved until a later stage. Yeah. Even though he was recognised as a very important writer, 
there was a price to be paid for it. And of course, he famously lost his job as a result of the publication of The Dark in 1965. The book, I think, also captures the kind of evolution of that kind of, I suppose, the, the, the old Ireland, if you like, associated with the rising and the war of independence and so on, with a more you know modern Ireland as reflected in his kids and what they get up to, I suppose, as well. Very much. Yeah. And, and all of those tensions are there. I mean, what are the roles that people are being prescribed and what if they challenge that? You know, I mean, the whole idea that you want to become a writer. Uh, John McGarhan's father had great difficulty with that. And he he's also a terrible snob. You know, he's in a position where he controls the barracks. He's the, the local guard. There wasn't a huge amount uh, going on in the area where he was in control. But that means that, you know, he has to push his power all the more. But again, what's expected of people and who are the pillars of Irish parishes and, and Irish small communities and indeed Irish families and what if the people want to break away from that and McGarden obviously wanted to break away from that he found an escape through literature and eventually through educating himself so there are difficult relationships going on there but even the experiences of, of his father after his mother dies John McGarden had an extraordinary devotion to his mother all the more so because he lost her so young and he kept coming back to it at the end of his life I mean the last page of his memoir that he was writing while he himself was dying, is again devoted to his mother, going mm. back to these happy childhood memories. And again, he, he uses that very effectively. Some believe he overused it. But he, again, is trying to contrast the idyllic time, as he remembers it, he spent with his mother, with what was involved in growing up in, in that household with the tyrant. And all of those frustrations and all of those themes that come out in in, in relation to, to people's expectations and the frustration of those expectations for so many people, but also the way in which people can be written off so cruelly and so quickly that this is what you're expected to do. And if you don't live up to it, well, then there's no place for you. Yeah. So you're dealing again with a lot of those themes that we've become very familiar with in recent times. But it's a great companion to 20th century Irish history. Whilst documents and official records can tell us what happened, they rarely tell us what it felt like. And McGarren in Amongst Women is telling us what it felt like to be at the centre of that kind of experience. And it was a very common experience. OK, great stuff and great choices. Uh, just to go through the five books again in no particular order, John McGarren Amongst Women, as you heard we were talking about there, Joe Lee's Ireland 1912-85 to 85, Politics and Society, The Dictionary of Irish Biography, Post-war by Tony Judd, and then well, we're going to we're going to allow Dermot cheat a little bit. We're going to let him choose two for his number five choice: a click clack moo cows that type by Dorian Cronin, and the complete book of running by uh, Jim Fix. Uh, Dermot Ferrer, thanks indeed for coming into us and sharing your uh, top five favorite books of all time. Thanks, Jane. And thank you for listening to another episode of Top 5 Books. Lots more interesting guests and book recommendations in your podcast feed if you're subscribed or following us on your podcast player. So if you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast. You might even give us a rating uh, if you've indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.